This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. U.S. federal agencies want to focus their full attention and resources on mission delivery for the American people. They expect support services to be easy to use, reliable, and cost-effective. To that end, by making it easier to do business with the government, the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA, strives to be an exceptional partner to industry delivering high-quality, cost-effective services in real estate, acquisition, and technology for customers across the federal government. These service areas represent the core of GSA's offerings, and it continues to enhance them to meet the needs and expectations of its agency partners. What are GSA's key strategic priorities? How is GSA making government more effective and efficient? And what is GSA doing to promote smarter management, buying, and efficient use of technology? across the federal government. We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Emily Murphy, Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration. Emily, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me here. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Lisa Muscolo. Lisa, welcome back. Happy to be here. So, Emily, would you briefly discuss the mission and continued evolution of the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA? I'd be happy to. GSA's mission is to deliver value and savings in real estate, acquisition, technology, and other mission support services across the government. Uh, Our services really focus on ensuring our customer agencies can carry out their critical missions and that entities trying to do business with the government can do so as seamlessly as possible. I'm actually in a unique position to talk about how GSA has evolved because I've served there before. I've spent a a few years there um, in the Bush administration. And it's been really great to see how GSA has changed in the past 13 years. I've seen GSA really walk the walk. It's consolidated. It's consolidated in terms of space. So we went from having a campus in Crystal City, a campus in Willow Wood, um, down to having all of central office consolidated into one building. Uh, We're down to about 140 square feet per person. So when we talk about spatialization, we're really leading the the charge on that. We've also... Uh, consolidated in terms of our functions. Where when I first worked at GSA, there was a federal supply service. There was a federal technology service. Uh, when I came back, there was a technology transformation service. We've consolidated all of those into a federal acquisition service, and we've consolidated our you know, CIO functions, our CFO functions, our HR functions into a really a shared service model inside of GSA. Oh. Um, so you know, really trying to lead there. It's also fun to see where we haven't changed. So the, the passion and the mission really remain the same. And it's sort of fun to see that a couple of the things I implemented the first time I was there have survived. Oh, 
Uh, yeah. So procurement management reviews and you know work on trying to actually make our regulations make sense, keep them up to date. So th- those processes still exist in GSA, and it was fun to see that they kept them mm-hmm. all these years later. So you know you kind of hinted at uh, FAS and, mm-hmm. and and the real estate. So I was wondering, with such an important mission at GSA, I'd like to get a sense of your um, operational footprint. So how what are your core lines of business? How is GSA organized? What's your overall budget? How many folks uh, work at GSA? All right, so GSA has a has two main lines of business, uh, and then we've got a, a variety of support offices okay. around that. The first one's the Federal Acquisition Service. Federal Acquisition Service supports about $54, 55000000000 in acquisition across the government. We manage about a third of the government's fleet, which is about 200,000 vehicles. Uh, we have 3.3 million charge cards we manage for the government, and we dispose of about a billion dollars in personal property each year. It also has the Technology Transformation Service in it, which the Centers of Excellence and 18F, the Presidential Innovation Fellows. So we've got a lot of innovation there. On the other main line of business is the Public Building Service. And the Public Building Service buys, builds, leases, and manages federal workspace. We currently have about 8,700 owned or leased facilities. And it's about 371 million square feet of rentable space which means we've got about 500 owned buildings that are historic buildings, and then when it, the rest of it sort of breaks down about 50-50 with owned and leased space. We've also got our gov- Office of Government-Wide Policy that does a lot of government, cross-government support, technology transformation work. It does uh, travel regulations, the federal acquisition regulations, management regulations, and 11 staff offices that also you know, are CIO or CFO folks along those lines. All total, we're approaching about 12,000 employees at GSA. And our budget last year was somewhere around $26 billion, which to put into context, it, unlike most federal agencies, GSA doesn't receive a direct appropriation for most of our work. We're a fee-for-service entity. So if you look at what we collect in our revenue each year, it's about $22 billion, which puts us more or less on the same footprint as a Starbucks or Southwest Airlines. So that's a great overview of GSA, what GSA does, you know, the mission. But I'd really be very interested in your personal responsibilities and what's a day in the life of the GSA administrator really like? I wish I could have a, a set day that was <laughs> a predictable day, which is actually the best part of my job uh, also because I have a wonderful job. I work with really great people. My job each day is really to provide leadership and strategic direction to the wonderful employees I work with do some troubleshooting for them when when issues arise, and then really empower the strong management team I work with. And that comes up in a variety of different situations, whether it's testifying on the Hill, meeting with customers, or internal focus meetings, or meeting with industry. You know, given your portfolio and leadership position, what would you say are your top, say, three challenges or so? And have you sought to address those challenges? So if I were going to address three challenges, I'd say one of them is actually a great challenge to have. Um, Agencies are relying on GSA more. Mm -hmm. We have more customers coming to us. This does pose a challenge, especially as we get to the end of the fiscal year, within a year where we had budgets plus up. So agencies are trying to obligate funds by the end of the fiscal year, and GSA is trying to help them, whether on the federal acquisition side or the public building side. So trying to be there for our agency customers when they need us. The second challenge, I'd say, is the work we're taking on as a government-wide leader, Mm -hmm. whether it be through the government-wide reform plan or the president's management agenda, GSA is being asked to sort of increase the size and the scope of the work that we do. Uh, it, 
it's actually, you know, it's sort of interesting. It really goes back to President Truman's vision for GSA yeah. of us being the mission support agency. But we're, you know, this administration has, has focused on that vision for GSA and is using us a lot more either in shared services or in helping with transactional processing, giving us a lot more responsibility across government. I'd say the third challenge, though, is really the incredible pace at which technology changes. So we help the government buy a lot of technology and helping them buy the right solutions that meet their needs now and in the future it, it, you know, is one of the areas where GSA really focuses on delivering value. So I suspect coming in, you had some understanding of those challenges, but I suspect there's also a bunch of surprises or at least one or two things that as the administrator has surprised you. Can you talk about those a little bit? So the thing that surprises me the most is the number of people who call me ma'am. <laughs> They've known me for years. There's actually a woman I work with at GSA who I was her intern back in 1995. And she calls me ma'am, and it drives me crazy. Um, I'd say, though, that on a substantive you know, level, the, the biggest difference I've seen is really how GSA is being valued by this administration as a transformative partner. That where whether it be working with OMB, at Office of Management and Budget, or the Office of Personnel Management, working across the president's management uh, agenda with the centers of excellence or on shared services, we're really being asked to step up to the plate and deliver value and solutions for our customer agencies. Mm -hmm. You know, Emily, you've had an interesting role both working at uh, GSA at the executive on the executive side and also as an oversight up at the legislative side. Um, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? And what are some of your leadership principles that guide you? So I think the top priority for any leader has got to be ethical leadership. And that's been my top priority from day one. I think that that means not just doing the right thing. I, I hope that would go without saying. But it really, it, to me, it means acting so the taxpayer has faith that we're putting their interests first, that our customer agencies and our vendors feel that we're being an honest broker uh, when we're helping them come to come to deals on solutions, that we admit we make mistakes and we learn from them and we move on, and that we empower the workforce around us to, when they see something that they feel that they can they can step up and you know, they're going to be taken seriously and that we want to work with them to address those challenges and to make the agency a better partner for, for our customers and for taxpayers. I think also humility, admitting that I don't know all of it not, my leadership team doesn't know everything, and that we have to take each day as a day where we're willing to learn from the people we're working with and from the you know, those we're interacting with, because there is so much good work that can be done at GSA, and we want to make sure we seize on every opportunity we have. What are GSA's key strategic priorities? We will ask Emily Murphy, Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What are the key strategic priorities for the FBI's Science and Technology Branch, STB? How does the FBI's Science and Technology Branch share information? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and others with Chris Pihota, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's Science and Technology Branch, next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Emily Murphy, Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Muscola. Emily, um, you've positioned GSA as an integral resource to support an effective and efficient government for the American people. Uh, you know, to that end, would you outline your strategic vision for GSA and briefly identify your core priorities, if you would? So I have four priorities for GSA. As I mentioned, my first one is ethical leadership. My second one is reducing duplication, which a lot of the work we do on shared services, contract vehicles, really trying to be there as that mission support office for other agencies. My third one is increasing competition, not just the number of vendors who bid on our contracts, but making sure we get a real competition of, of solutions and of ideas so that we're finding the right answer for our customer agencies and ultimately for taxpayers. And then finally, increasing transparency, making sure that we act in a way, I mean, we make our data available to help inform the decisions, to increase competition, and frankly, to prove that we're that, that ethical leadership and that we're really living up to all those principles. Like those fit very nicely, though, into the four strategic goals that we've got for the agency. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is saving taxpayer money through better use of our federal real estate. As I said, it's 371 million square feet of rentable space, making sure that we manage that in a way that saves money for taxpayers long term. Secondly, establishing GSA as the premier provider of acquisition solutions across the government, making sure the contract vehicles we develop, that the solutions we come up with meet our customers' needs and attract the best that the private sector has to offer. Third, improving the way that agencies buy, build, and use technology. So helping them you know, it, not just spend money on a solution that meets their needs today, but it's going to be outdated tomorrow, but give, helping them really work to find something that's going to transition with them and support them in building this government of the 21st century. And then the fourth one is designing and delivering expanded shared services across the government, uh, where GSA is being really asked to step up and take a leadership role right now. So as a follow-up to that, can you talk a little bit about the core values that kind of frame and inform that strategic vision that you have for GSA? So I think there are three core values that I see. Service, service to the taxpayers, service to other federal agencies, and frankly, service to each other. Um, GSA, I, I hope we're building a culture where we take care of each other. The second one would be accountability. So we, we're being asked to manage a large number of resources and making, you know, being held accountable for the way we do that. And then the third one is really innovation. We always want to be growing and improving and delivering that better value. So I, so I think if you look at service, accountability, and innovation, that would summarize my, you know, the core principles I'm trying to apply at GSA. So, you know, I want to talk about the first uh, strategic priority, which is the real estate portfolio. And where I want to go with that is, would you elaborate on some of the initiatives you're pursuing 
to save taxpayer money? And, and more importantly, what are you doing to optimize owned and leased real estate uh, while you're effectively disposing of real estate? So within the real estate portfolio, I think we've got three initiatives I'm excited about. The first one is let's use less real estate, whether it be leased or owned. Let's shrink our footprint. And in doing so, we can deliver some real savings. As I said, at GSA, we've gone to about 140 square feet per person. We're trying to help the government overall get down to about 180 square feet per person. And in doing so, we're finding that we can actually increase collaboration so we can make it a better workspace. The second one is taking better care of the space we have. When we neglect minor repairs, they turn into major repairs. When we neglect major repairs, they turn into leased buildings. So making sure that we take the appropriations we have, and with Congress's permission, we invest those in making sure that federal buildings continue to meet the needs of the federal workforce today and tomorrow and long into the future. The GSA headquarters is a great example of it. It's a building that is now 101 years old, and it's actually now accommodates 3,300 employees, which is the largest number of employees it's ever had. The third principle, though, is disposing of real estate that we no longer need and making sure that we take assets that are no longer performing and we move them off the books. And actually, let me add a fourth principle in there also, which is smarter leases. And I have to give credit to Dan Matthews, who's the PBS commissioner and the team in PBS. They have done amazing work on smarter leases. So for the half the portfolio we lease, when I came into GSA, I learned that the average tenancy of, in a federal building is 21 years, or lease space. Our average lease is six years. Dan has been focusing, and PBS, is, the Public Building Service, have really been focusing on taking expiring leases and looking at the top 20% where we can get the greatest amount of savings and putting our resources there so that we can get longer-term leases where we get better deals, uh, we get better space, and we can better use the workforce we have. And he's already managed to save taxpayers about $200 million this year so far. Um, his plan long-term, though, really will ha result in substantial savings to taxpayers and to our agency customers. So, you know, you may have alluded to this, but, you know, how is GSA simplifying or streamlining the disposing of unneeded or, un or useless properties? So... I'm excited. I'm the first administrator who gets to use uh, some new authorities that Congress created back in 2016. And that's going to allow us to better identify, working with a board, properties that can be disposed of. Uh, I'm also excited because we were able to publish, for the first time online, a listing of all federal properties. And we've been able to move it and make that available publicly for 16 and 17. And then uh, in early July, we actually made it available as a map so folks can go online and see where that space is. But we're, you know, we've been looking across our portfolio and trying to make sure we're good guardians of those assets. And I'll give you an example. The Department of Interior headquarters is right across the street from the GSA headquarters, and they had a second property that was on Constitution Avenue. Beautiful historic building. They no longer had need for it, and it was in disrepair. And it was costing them, uh, it, they transferred it to GSA, it was costing about $3 million a year for us to maintain that property. And it was going to cost somewhere between 66 and $140 million, roughly, for us to repair that property. Instead, we talked to the Federal Reserve, and we were able to sell it to the Federal Reserve for over $40 million. Mm -hmm. That went back into the Federal Buildings Fund, 
it keeps this historic property as a federal asset, and it's going to have the investment in it, so it's going to be part of you know a vibrant city. Uh, so trying to really partner with the community and other agencies uh, in that disposal process is key. Now, so switching gears a little bit, the government spends nearly $80 billion a year on IT. 70% of that is spent on O&M work of existing systems. Would you tell us more about GSA's role working to retire and replace some of these old IT systems that maybe pose security risks or are not cost-effective? So I think you're right. The government spends a lot of money on IT, specifically on operations and maintenance contracts. So GSA has been focusing on helping agencies buy the right solutions. In many cases, it means we're helping them buy a solution as a service. Mm -hmm. So instead of investing in the next legacy system, (laughs) we're working with the private sector to really adopt the best practices and frankly, transition the cost of maintaining those systems to the private sector, so buying it as a service. It's also allowing us to return value to taxpayers through better investments. You know, the Technology Modernization Fund and the work that's being done through the Centers of Excellence are great examples of where GSA has been able to partner with other agencies, go in, target some investments where we think there's going to be a fast return on those dollars, and we're going to have savings that we can demonstrate through better technology and better security. The uh, Transformation Service is working closely with the Office of American Innovation in establishing the five centers of excellence focused on modernization and consolidation. Would you tell us more about this effort, how it's progressing, what you see the future, what you see the challenges as? So the centers of excellence are a great example of GSA being customer-focused. It's always wonderful when you get to talk to someone like the Department of Agriculture and hear them saying how happy they are with the work GSA is doing with them. I think, simply put, the Centers of Excellence allow us to implement IT solutions in a partnership with our federal customers. We work side by side. We go in and we do a deep dive into what their requirements are and what the best solution to meet those requirements might be. Uh, We assess the state of the current IT, of their workforce, of what the commercial solutions might be, and and what combination of those is really going to be the best long-term investment for the agency and to ser- and we determine the smartest way to address those identified needs. The result of the collaboration should be a better experience for the agency, for the taxpayer, for the federal employee using those systems, and ultimately for the general public who's trying to do business with that agency uh, or is relying on that agency to get, some, get the data or the solution that they need. A- any other agencies in mind after USDA? Um, I don't want to break any news right now. Uh, we, we have some agencies competing for who gets to go next. And I think the great thing about having five centers of excellence, possibly growing on those five centers, is that it gives us the ability to also take resources uh, and, and maybe invest some of them in different agencies. Um, so I understand that GSA is leading the way in bringing the modern online buying experience to the federal buyer through the creation of an e-commerce portal. Would you tell us what you're doing in this effort? What has Congress required you folks to take a lead on? Where are you now? So I'm really excited about this opportunity. Congress has directed GSA to work to put in place contracts with commercial portal providers uh, in the hopes it will allow us to let the federal government buy true commercial off-the-shelf type of items faster, uh, have a better buying experience, reduce workforce demands, uh, really have a, just a better overall customer experience. 
Right now, GSA is looking at the entire process. So what are the various commercial models that exist? We're asking a lot of questions and we're doing a lot of listening. We've done multiple sessions uh, with the public, with, you know, with our current vendor community, and with the portal providers to find out what, you know, a lot of it is what don't we know um, and what will work and what won't work. But really, I think it comes down to we're trying to create a, a search process and an ordering process that's easier, that lets, you know, lets agencies buy the solution they need, that uses dynamic pricing so that we get you know, real-time price competition and savings for taxpayers, and you know, streamlines the entire process so that it's not, such a, it's not a burden on the agency workforce, whether it be GSA or customer agencies, that they can have, you know, we've got a limited number of, of acquisition professionals across the government. Mm-hmm. We want them doing high-value work. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can use a commercial solution and have some low-value work done through a commercial solution, I think it's a great win for taxpayers. How is GSA making government more effective and efficient? We will ask Emily Murphy, Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Emily Murphy. Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Muscola. Um, would you tell us a little bit about GSA's efforts to support programs and activities that enhance citizens' ability to securely interact with the federal government? What are you doing to enhance the trust and safety of the public's interactions with digital government services? Improving the public's ability to interact with the government is, one, is a key focus of several initiatives currently at GSA. It, frankly, to me, it's another element of ethical leadership. We need to be actively engaged in problem solving. We need to come up with solutions. And as an example, we've got systems like login.gov, which I'm actually a user of and became a user of uh, through normal business processes, not just because I set, set out to, to enter into it. Um, but it allows the general public to have one login in dealing with the government uh, across programs makes it easier for everyone, uh, allows for better sharing of information, but also better security on that information. Mm-hmm. It allows us to then test that solution. So login.gov right now is actually the subject of one of our bug bounties, where we're asking the public to come in and try and find the problems with this with the solution that we've got. And then the third element is really being honest when we find that there's a problem and addressing that problem quickly, uh, transparently and quickly. 
so that we are, it's a continuous process of evolving and getting a better solution out there. One of the administration's um, initiatives is a focus on the workforce. Can you tell us a little bit about how GSA is working to improve the federal government's ability to recruit and retain top talent, uh, as well as reskill the workforce to meet the 21st century demands? So I think the government has a workforce problem. I always think of it as the four R's. We need to work on recruiting, retaining, retraining, and recognizing our workforce, especially when they do a, a great job. Uh, we need the right people to have a strong federal workforce to deliver on the results we want. And I think it's fantastic to work in an administration that's been supporting the efforts to really strengthen that workforce. I've been fortunate enough that I'm allowed to go to Congress and ask for money to invest in the workforce, not just within GSA, but across government, uh, where we're looking at cross-cutting initiatives where we can work on those four R's. And within GSA, we're really focusing on modernizing our own workforce. A lot of that also comes back to listening, asking people, what do you need to do a great job? And then delivering on those needs, whether it be space, equipment, access to data or technology or information, and frankly, also the support. So, you know, making sure that as they're identifying you know, the, the challenges and potential solutions, that I'm there behind them, supporting them as they, as they pursue those answers. You know, I understand that GSA is the lead on the president management agenda, cross-agency priority goal of sharing quality services. Um, would you tell us about your efforts uh, getting the GSA enterprise to identify ways it can better support shared services across the government? So when we look at shared services right now in the government, administrative services, the government is spending about $28.6 billion a year on administrative services. Yet half of, over half of federal executives are unhappy with the level of service they're getting. So the challenge I've been given is not just save money, so a goal of saving about $2 billion over the next 10 years, but also thrill that workforce. Come back with something that's going to be better for the federal executive, better for that federal employee, and lets them do their job. That means that GSA needs to really work collaboratively with other agencies, make sure we understand their requirements, we understand the policies that drive those requirements, and that we look to find common solutions. Now, I think that there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution across government, but there's going to be a one-size-fits-most. Mm -hmm. And when we can find that one-size-fits-most solution, GSA can then work with other agencies to figure out what agency is best equipped to, to provide that service, because it's not always going to be GSA, mm -hmm. and what the best way to address that, that, that need is going to be, whether it's using the federal workforce or leveraging that workforce with, with some contractor resources as well. One of the points you mentioned earlier was this idea of reducing duplication. Can you spend a little bit of time and just tell us your perspective on how you're thinking about reducing duplicative systems? I think reducing duplication is critical when we can get a better result uh, at, at a cost savings. Reducing duplication for its own sake is not something I'm interested in pursuing. But I think that within GSA, we've already got a lot of initiatives that are underway to reduce duplication. We talked about shared services. I'd also say within the Federal Acquisition Service and the Public Building Service, we're working on how do we do those two services collaborate to provide a, a common solution. 
We're looking at things like robotics process automation, which was actually driven by our workforce out in the regions. They came to me and showed me some pilots on how they could take their workforce and move them from doing data entry, low-value work, and actually transform that through, through a robotics process automation process um, so that they could be doing higher-value work. And there's also a lot of the work, over half the items on the report to the president on IT modernization are assigned in some way to GSA. So mm -hmm. GSA is doing a lot of work on IT modernization. When we're looking into the future and other ways we can reduce duplication, there are over 100 different time and attendance systems across the federal government right now. And we're just not that different. So identifying areas like that or payroll is another one we're working on right now. We've got a procurement that's been active this summer, looking at how we can go from having five payroll providers who pay some of the workforce 12 times a year, some 26 times a year, some 24 times a year, some 27 times a year, um, all with without delivering real savings or, frankly, a very good experience for our federal workforce. So how can we do a better job in reducing that duplication and making it easier for our federal employees to understand how they're being paid, deal with their own taxes, uh, and make sure that their benefits are being correctly administered? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was surprised when I was doing research for this uh, that uh, GSA helps partner uh, federal agencies, customer federal agencies acquire almost $50 billion worth of goods and services from like 20,000 industry partners. Where we're going with this is what are you doing around the transformation of the multiple award schedules and how are you making it a better experience, streamlining it for agencies? So I want to establish GSA as the premier provider of efficient and effective acquisition solutions across the government. And right now, I'm continuing to evaluate and improve the federal procurement process. I'd say in primarily three ways when I look at the schedules program. First of all, I want to reduce barriers to entry. I want to make sure that we can bring the right commercial solutions to the, to the federal government. And we can do that by reducing the number of times that any vendor or supplier has to talk to the government, um, provide the same information, how many different people they have to provide that information to, or making sure that our processes aren't forcing them to deal with scenarios that are so far outside the norm of commercial contracting that it just isn't worth it for them. I'd say the second way I'm looking to reduce it is barriers to access, and that's really looking at our customer agencies. I want to make sure that our contracts aren't keeping our customers from finding the solution they want or forcing them to cobble it together with a bit from a contract here and a bit from a contract there. I want them to be able to come to GSA with the requirement they have, and our contracts you know, should be flexible enough to adopt and adapt to, you know, to those needs and really find them a solution there. And then I think the third one is I really want to address our systems issues. Our old systems are currently driving us to do business in order to feed you know, those outdated systems rather than letting our business systems drive the business processes we want mm -hmm. and that we think are the most desirable. So making it easier for our customers to find items on our schedules, for example. So I really asked the Federal Acquisition Service and Alan Thomas, the commissioner there, has been a wonderful partner to... You know, Please, you know, do not be afraid to reimagine and redesign our acquisition system, especially within the schedules program and as we're looking to the future of the Federal Acquisition Service. So the administration released a blueprint for a massive overhaul of the bureaucracy, one that I guess if implemented, you know, has the possibility of touching virtually every agency in the way 
all Americans receive government services. Would you tell us a little bit more about the plan and any potential changes to how GSA does its own business as a result? So I'm a Missourian. I grew up in, uh, in St. Louis. And President Truman's from Missouri. And I bring that up just because when President Truman in 1949 signed GSA into law, he did so with the idea that GSA was going to be the mission support agency across the government. He looked in, at and seen problems with construction, with real property, with, with procurement, and thought there should be an agency that could manage all of this for the government. I think that the, the plan that was recently put forward by, the, by President Trump and the administration is actually just revisiting that goal of 69 years ago. For example, it's asking GSA to take a larger role in fleet. GSA currently manages about a third of the government's fleet. And when we manage fleet, we usually have a 26% savings for the government. So expanding that role makes sense. In leasing, GSA's expertise in, in leasing and the, uh, in our lease cost savings initiative said has already saved taxpayers over $200 million this year. So in trying to encourage GSA to move forward with more leasing initiatives, again, makes sense. It's going to that expertise. And then the work that we're being asked to look at with the Office of Personnel Management is really about going back to GSA's core function of we can do a lot of common transaction processing. And so to the extent that it makes sense for GSA to, you know, to work with OPM and to do some of that work on behalf of the Office of Personnel Management, I think it's an area where GSA can add a lot of value, very consistent with the initial vision for GSA um, nearly 70 years ago. Speaking of value, you mentioned earlier that transparency is a core value of yours. Mm-hmm. And where I'm going with this is, can you tell us how you're expanding stakeholder engagement? So I think ethical leadership is the key here. Uh, we need to have both you know, uh, internal, federal, public stakeholders. Uh, everyone needs to view GSA as an honest broker. Mm-hmm. So within GSA, we've been focusing on a lot of ways to increase the transparency. Uh, reverse industry days, where we've asked industry to come in and talk to us and tell us what it is we don't know. We're working on a a pilot to be launched at the beginning of fiscal 19, where GSA is actually going to take its own e-buy program, and we're going to start publishing what it is we buy. That information usually is is only given in aggregate. We're going to actually start publishing the results of that after award so that vendors can see what we buy. We're looking at enhanced debriefings so that vendors understand why they don't they, why they don't win awards. To be honest, part of it's we're hoping that if we give them more information, we might have fewer protests. Yeah. But most importantly, I really want to make sure that the next time they bid, and I want them to bid again, that they give us a better offer. Sure. Uh, it's going to increase competition. We've got the federal real property profile where we're looking at how can we increase transparency into the the properties the federal government owns, or even the work we talked about earlier with the e-commerce portal. How do we make sure we have more insight into what it is the government's buying and make sure we've got a commercial process with dynamic pricing taking place uh, that frees up some of our workforce? A lot in the discussions we've been having with industry on that. What does the future hold for U.S. federal procurement and acquisition? We will ask Emily Murphy, Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What are the key strategic priorities for the FBI's science and technology branch, STB? 
How does the FBI's science and technology branch share information? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and others with Chris Pihota, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's Science and Technology Branch, next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Emily Murphy, Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Muscola. So, Emily, how are you leveraging partnerships and collaboration to improve operations, achieve program outcomes, and and really execute on your mission? So I think there are three ways that I'm trying to achieve that. First, being that honest broker with industry. Second, I'm using the regulatory reform process. We're going out both to industry and to customer agencies and saying, what in our regulations is a barrier for you? And how do we reduce that barrier? Uh, so a lot of it's requiring a lot of introspection on our, on our part. And third, I'm doing a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening first to I've been meeting with our customer agencies and talking to them about how can we work together, how can we showing them the data on where I think we can improve. Also meeting with you know, small businesses, meeting with large businesses. I've just completed a tour where I've talked to each of our 11 regions, mm-hmm. gone out and met with each of them, and did a agency-wide uh, town hall uh, to try and have conversations about the reform plans in place. So really, a, a lot of it is communication and listening to the concerns that either our customers, our vendors, or our employees are bringing to the table. You clearly have a passion for ethical leadership, and we've touched on it a couple of times. Can you spend a little bit more time and tell us um, maybe about some of the things that you're doing to drive from yourself to others this idea of ethical leadership? I'll give you one example. Uh, Since I came to GSA, since I became the administrator, we've started implementing a monthly lunch for all the political appointees. It's a mandatory lunch. Uh, At least once a year, our inspector general teaches it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the other months, it's usually taught by our general counsel's office, our ethical, uh, ethics lawyers, on ways that you not just to, uh, how you know how to follow the rules, but how to even avoid the appearance of impropriety, so that we can have you know really have that trust that the taxpayers are are, are giving us, where that we can live up to that standard. Because um, frankly, also a lot of it's not always intuitive if you haven't worked in the government before. Mm-hmm. So the, whether it be the Competition and Contracting Act or the travel regulations or just making sure how do you respond uh, and make sure, you know, make sure that you are being transparent in your activities. So well, a lot of focus on that. You're sort of at the intersection, not sort of, you are at the intersection of trying to drive commercial best practices into the government and, of course, all the rigor and rules and regulations that come with um the federal government. How do you balance those things? So right now I'm focusing on three areas. Right? First, figure out where are regulations in the way. Um, 
And I think we're at a unique time where we've got a, a, a Congress that's been really focused on acquisition reform and is willing to talk to us about if there are you know, needed changes, how can we make sure their acquisition system works well? Whether you've got the 809 panel taking place at DOD, mm-hmm. um, you've got a, a, just a lot of focus on acquisition and how to improve that value proposition. I think the commercial marketplace is another great example where we can move forward and we look at these e-commerce portals. Uh, we can look at creating a marketplace across government, uh, really bring in some of those best practices. But I think we're also looking internally and with our agency partners at ways we can use other authorities that we have. And I'll give you an example. Um, we've been working with the Small Business Administration on ways we can use some authorities they have and they, that other agencies share with them on bringing innovative small business technologies into government. How can GSA facilitate that through our assisted acquisition program? Or uh, a few years ago, we received something called a commercial solutions opening authority that we share with the Department of Homeland Security that's allowing us to bring innovative commercial technology companies in without using FAR-based contracts. Mm-hmm. And we're just starting to, to, to leverage that some of it's also, though, taking a look at our own regulations. Uh, earlier this year, we implemented the order levels material rule that allows GSA schedules to be better leveraged also so that you can bring in contract support items uh, and, and really get a solution off of those schedule contracts. So, try, so a lot of it's looking internally into our current contract vehicles, into the authorities that Congress has given us that we haven't maybe fully exercised, and then working with them when we find that those authorities are still not quite getting us the right solution. Yeah, sort of looking into your crystal ball, so to speak, I was wondering if we could transition more to the future. Um, Can you give us a sense of some of the key issues that will affect acquisition and procurement government-wide? I think the future looks pretty bright right now for acquisition. Uh, There's a terrific willingness between Congress and the administration to actually do a deep dive into these types of issues, whether it be investing in our, our workforce, establishing the you know and supporting the appropriate contracting vehicles through a lot of the work that's taking place with best in contract contra- class contracts, or even you know, just m- understanding category management, how we buy, providing looking at providing authorities that are outside the normal regulatory scope when we're finding that, that the current regulations don't meet those needs. So I think that there's and frankly. I'd say that this has actually been an administration that really values what GSA brings to the table in terms of acquisition and sees acquisition as something where we want to make investments and we want to recognize expertise, which gives me a lot of you know, confidence in the future of acquisition. You know, you've had an interesting career. You were up on the Hill, so you've been in an oversight capacity, and now you're the leader of the organization in which you had oversight capacity. As you reflect on your public service, what advice would you give someone who may be thinking about a career in public service? First of all, I'd say just do it. it you're never going to find a better mission. Uh, the value proposition in, in, in being a federal you know, public servant is just amazing. Uh, on a more specific level, though, I'd say you never know where you're going to find that issue that really appeals to you that you're going to be passionate about. When I first moved to D.C., when I was an intern on the Hill, got my first job up here, I was the junior staffer. And the committee I was working for, the junior staffer got the issue no one else was interested in. For me, that was government contracts. And 
I took to it right away. I saw that there was just enormous value to be delivered, whether you were looking at the health of our industrial base, the ability to increase competition, the ability to deliver results for taxpayers. All of it came back down to contracting. And nearly a quarter century later, I'm still working in this area and I'm still growing. So my advice to any anyone considering public services, you know, dive in and you know, seize on any opportunity you have to make a difference because you never know where you're going to find that issue that where you can really just you know, succeed. That's great advice. I, I, Emily, thanks for coming in today. But more importantly, Lisa and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Yep. It, it so really much. does make a difference. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Emily Murphy, Administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration. My co-host from IBM has been Lisa Muscolo. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. In the early 1990s, the U.S. Coast Guard had based its marine safety efforts on inspections and certifications of vessels, such as tugboats. The Coast Guard measured its marine safety performance by counting the number of inspections and outstanding inspection results that it conducted. A new law encouraged it to shift its performance focus to counting the number of accidents, injuries, and deaths. The Coast Guard then investigated the causes of the accidents and found that they were largely caused by human error, not equipment failures. As a result, the Coast Guard shifted its enforcement strategy from inspections of vessels to a joint effort with industry to train crew members how to avoid accidents. For the towing industry, the fatality rate dropped 70% between 1990 and 1995. The U.S. Federal Performance Management Movement is rooted in the passage of the Government Performance and Results Act of 1993. But this was only one milestone in a much broader trend toward the development and use of performance information in the U.S. federal government. Performance information has long been collected and used to a varying degree at the federal, state, and local levels in the United States since the early 1900s as part of the reforms brought about by the progressive movement. Localities in several state governments began developing performance measurement systems more methodically in the 1970s. The federal government undertook some performance-related initiatives, such as the Defense Department's planning, programming, and budget system of the late 1960s. But other agencies did not begin in earnest until the passage of the GPRA Act of 1993. That law required federal departments and agencies to develop strategic plans, annual performance plans, performance measures, and annual performance reports. By 2010, a number of lessons had been learned in how to effectively develop and use government performance management systems. Many of those lessons came from the Government Accountability's Office, GAO's, observation in various reports on GPRA's implementation. 
but also from agencies' practical experience with the effectiveness and impact of various performance management routines. Changes based on these lessons were incorporated in the GPRA Modernization Act of 2010. The overarching implementation challenges highlighted by GAO and others pointed to two enduring realities faced by agency implementers, which continue today. Too much focus on measuring outputs and outcomes. Lack of demand for performance information. In contrast, agencies have made progress in using performance information more regularly to administer programs. One area of focus in recent years has been the supply of information and making it more readily interpretable via visualization and other tools, as well as more timely so decision makers will see it as more relevant. However, absent a strong integration between performance and budget systems, the use of performance information by decision makers will continue to be episodic. That said, the performance management movement continues and gains momentum. However, the most significant challenge facing government leaders will involve adopting performance management approaches as their day-to-day leadership strategy, and not just another set of government compliance processes. Professor Bob Bain, author of The Performance Stat Potential, A Leadership Strategy for Producing Results, underscores performance management is a leadership strategy. Well, it's a very complicated thing, so let me give you some specific components of it. Um, First of all, I want to emphasize it's not a system. It's not a model. It's a leadership strategy. And it's not just performance measurement either. In fact, I use the phrase performance leadership precisely because too many people use performance management and performance measurement interchangeably as if if you do the measurement, the management stuff automatically happens. So it's a leadership strategy designed to achieve specific public purposes by producing specific results. That is, there's some defined results that we're trying to produce. Why? Because we have a purpose in mind. Then there's the question of, well, what do we do to make that happen? Well, one thing that we do is we have a series of regular integrated meetings in which we discuss what's going well, what's not, based on current data, try to identify specific problems, try to figure out what's causing those problems, and then try to develop some strategies that we can experiment with that might help us solve that particular uh, problem. Those meetings include follow-up from previous discussions. They include feedback from particular progress that we've made, and they always are trying to figure out, well, what's the next performance deficit we have to fix? What is the target we should have for that one? Moreover, the leadership team must adapt the strategy to fit its specific public purposes. Thus, it should not be expected that the management style of one political leader can readily transition to the next political leader. Bain outlines some leadership behaviors that can facilitate a performance management strategy. Okay, I think it's important here to distinguish, um, there there are 16 items, okay, and we're obviously going to cover those. The first four are more about focusing people on what's to be accomplished, and the last dozen are more about motivating to do that. So um, the first one is simply repeating and repeating what we're trying to accomplish anyway making it really clear that everybody in the organization understands what our job is. Now, the problem is 
the first time you say it, people say, oh, that's really nice, and they forget about it. And the second time they say it, oh, they send it again. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and so you got to make it really clear, and you got to repeat and repeat and repeat because people don't take you seriously until you've repeated it. Uh, second is looking at the data to determine what your performance deficits are that you have to fix next. Analyzing the data tells us what we should do next. Creating targets tells people, ah, this is what we're going to have to accomplish by this particular time. And then the fourth um, leadership uh, behavior is making assignments. Don't only have a target, but have people who have specific assignments to do specific things so that target will um, get achieved. Why does pursuing performance leadership require a dangerous commitment from public sector executives? Bob Bain, author of The Performance Stat Potential, a leadership strategy for producing results, explains. Well, it requires dangerous commitment from all executives, except the public sector executives have a target that's much more public that's apt to be on the front page. We're saying, oh, we have to accomplish this by then. And oops, if we don't do it, it people will say, aha. You couldn't get it done. So the dangerous commitment is setting the target. And at the same time, without the target, you won't accomplish much. I mean, if Bratton had said, okay, year one, we're going to reduce crime by 2%, they wouldn't have hit 10%, right? So you have to figure out what the balance is between the outrageous target and the achievable target. And your organization will tell you that what's achievable is a lot less than what you think is achievable. And so you have to be prepared to push your organization a little bit, but doing that in a way that could be reported on the front page is dangerous. I think you have to start with doing it in the stovepipes. You can't do it collaboratively until you've learned to do it in the stovepipes. Learning to do it in the stovepipes is a lot easier than learning to do it collaboratively. So don't, again, try to jump to the top of the performance mountain. Take the steps one at a time, okay? Can we fill the potholes? Um, if we can't fill the potholes, we aren't going to be able to, you know, which requires one crew to fill this set of potholes by the end of this day. Not a technologically complicated task, not an operationally complicated task. If we can't do that. We're not going to be able to do the collaborative stuff that requires people to get together, figure out who's supposed to do what and stuff like that. They won't believe they can't get it done. They won't have the performance mindset. So that's why building the performance mindset helps you get to the stage where you can have collaboration. Government has made substantial progress over the past 20 years in developing a results-oriented performance management framework. Nevertheless, because of the statutory framework and a bipartisan commitment by top government executives, that the performance movement seems assured of a place at the table. More information on this and other centered resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.